1: He's off track with Hinch and Ross. Take it away,
2: Alex. Oh, sorry, dude. I wasn't paying attention. All right. Um, All right, guys. Welcome back to uh, this continuation of this interview series that we keep doing for, I guess, no reason. However, I was with someone um, over the weekend who really enjoyed the people that we've talked to so far. And uh, we're going to mix it up. We're going to talk to a guy that's not Marcus that doesn't drive from Ganassi. And someone that isn't from uh kind of been
1: our MO so far.
2: Someone that's not from uh, New Zealand. So welcome Brian Barnhart, who is um has been on my car, uh calling the shots for the past two years. And prior to that was on James's car. Prior to that was on Colton his car. And then prior prior to all of that was the race director at IndyCar. So uh thanks for having. Thanks for coming on.
3: Well, thanks for having me. It's uh pleasure to get on with you guys and hear what you got to say
2: yeah no worries um so i i guess i gotta ask this just straight off the bat like did you enjoy calling races for me or james more um colton.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: yeah, that adds up we've yeah.
2: all heard colton on the radio i think we know that's not true
3: yeah it's um it's actually been a pleasure to do to all of them, but I've uh, really enjoyed both you and James in answering your question. I'm, I'm going to be truthful and honest and it's, it's you, it's you. Oh, thanks man.
2: <laughs> I, I I appreciate that. But I've got, I've got an extra half a year on James uh, to to work with you, but um, very curious. Let's go back to the beginning. How did you come into the position of being an IndyCar race director? Is that something I honestly don't know? Is that something that people, strive for to kind of come to you and, and you weren't expecting it like how, how does one become uh, the head of race control
3: I think it was by default nobody in their right mind wanted the job and I think right. they found a sucker in me and it stuck with me for a while I don't know it was um, it was kind of interesting because i I did uh, role as a mechanic for about 14 years um, and was actually at a point where I was looking forward to maybe getting out of that side of it and the superintendent job is opening up at the speedway the holman george family had owned the speedway since world war ii and they had only had two superintendents in clarence cagle and charlie thompson charlie was resigning and retiring and i was interested in taking over the role of superintendent of indianapolis motor speedway and it had Decent success being on some really good race teams, had won Indy a couple of times and a couple of championships. And I thought, well, maybe it's time to kind of slow down a little bit, stop traveling and got a tremendous amount of reverence for the Speedway and was looking forward to that opportunity and became only the third superintendent that they've had in October of 94 after a very successful year with Al Junior at Penske, winning the Speedway and the championship. And I thought, okay, it'd be a good way to go. Tony George founded and formed the IRL, which began racing in 96. Sanctioning body was USAC. And after doing what I was doing for the Speedway and then the Disney racetrack, it just kind of molded into a role there where I ended up attending and helping with operations procedures from a USAC standpoint. And then in June of 97, kind of after the... Indy finish with Lion Dyke winning Goodyear running second. They went for a late restart and kind of left the lights yellow for a while. And then the Texas scoring debacle and they made a change and decided to go away from USAC and sanction them ourselves and was kind of thrust into that position by the time we went to Pikes Peak two weeks later.
2: Wow. So you were just like fully in there during all of the drama of the split and USAC and everything. That was.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, it was eye opening because it certainly wasn't what I had left being a mechanic to go do and being superintendent of the grounds and kind of conducting things there for a couple of years. And Tony starts up the the IRL and, and with what they were doing, I, I initially started being in charge of the track safety crew as we traveled to, to Disney and all the testing we were doing at Disney. Um you know, doing a lot of things along those lines to begin with. And and actually it was Eddie Cheever who was one of the first ones that said something along the lines of, I was in one of the driver's meetings and Cheever said, well, I hope you're getting accustomed to this because you're going to be conducting them before you know it. And I thought that was kind of a strange comment. And shortly thereafter I was for better or for worse. I can imagine just
2: talking to, you, but also people who are in the current position, like for sure, it's a thankless job, right? Like, you, no one is ever seemingly happy with what's going on, right? And that yeah. must that must be very challenging. Um, just as an individual who strives for excellence and wants to do the best job they can every day, to know that regardless of the decision you make, someone's going to be down your throat, pissed off about it.
3: Yeah. it. It is it is really challenging from that standpoint, and you know, it was it was something that. The extra challenges that I felt we had because, as you say, being kind of immersed back through the, the whole split days. And the reality was the series and the competitors and the teams, the drivers and the, the equipment that we were putting on the track in the first few years of the IRL added more challenges to it. Uh, just because the reality was a, a good portion of them should never have been on track at this level and doing what we were trying to do as if the job doesn't have enough challenges to begin with, Um, we had subpar competitors in terms of driver talent and car reliability and performance. And in some ways, you know, it was kind of strange when we finally did get the sport back together in 08. And we started road racing in 05 from that aspect of it. But by the time 08 came around, it made that job so much easier just because the, level of professionalism on track went way up
1: (laughs) no i want to take a i want to take a step back and you know you you talk about and tim sort of mentioned being in the thick of it when when the split happens and the irls formed and i'm 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 super curious like when you learned about the intention to create another series and you know that was obviously the you you were kind of on obviously on one side of it working for the speedway at the time what was your initial reaction to it, and when when the IRL first got up and running and you were kind of one of the main people in charge, was it like was that what kind of challenge was it? Was it like drinking from a fire hose? Did you guys feel like you had everything under control, or was it just constantly like, "Oh my God, we have to do this next." Nobody thought about that. How about this? Who's controlling that?
3: So it was it was more we never felt we had anything under control. <laughs> um, it was flying by the seat of your pants more often than not. I think, to be honest with you, when I when I first heard, and it wasn't simply because of that's where I was working, but when I heard with what Tony was trying to do in forming the IRL, you know, there's there's a couple of ways to look at it. I'm not sure everybody always does, uh, but the reality is, as I mentioned, you know, Holman George family had owned the Speedway since the end of World War II. Tony had nothing to gain and everything to lose by forming what he was trying to do. I mean. If he didn't form the IRL, if you look back at it, the Speedway is a virtual sellout, damn near a sellout. It's hard to say it's a sellout when you got general admission in the infield, but he had very little to gain by what he was doing. So he truly did what he was doing because he felt it was in his best interest to protect his family's investment. And... When you when you follow up with where we're at, and we're now 25 years later, and the fact that we're down to maybe you know five oval races a year and what we're doing, he was actually right to be looking to protect what he's doing, and then the evolution of the cars, what we do. I, I think there was a lot of things that went into that, not the least of which, when I look back at it, the the cars as they became safer from the 60s, there were so many injuries and deaths and open wheel racing and, and what they did with front engine roadsters and then when they transitioned into the rear engine cars one thing that was really interesting if you stop and look at the, the superstars of our sport from the mid-70s it was you know you look at guys like Foyt and Andretti and Unzer and Rutherford and Johncock and Mears and, and those types of guys and they because the advancements in safety and the rear engine cars coming on board, they continued to be our superstars through the seventies and through the eighties. And then literally that name, that list that I ran down there, if you look at Foyt and Andretti and Johncock and Mears and Sneva and Rutherford and big Al and all those guys, they all retired from the sport in a two year span from 1992 to 1994 the core group of superstars of open wheel racing left the sport and when you look at other sports like pro football where they you know you keep cultivating superstar college athletes that play on saturday and then they start playing on sunday and there's a natural transition when you're watching the people that they they expect to do well transition into the pros plus no other sport ever has literally 50 percent of their field retire within a two-year span and the struggle with it from where tony's coming from is at that same time as when jeff gordon's coming out of what he's coming out of nine seats open up and for a guy who's a sprint car champion a usac open wheel champion and all that kind of stuff he didn't get an opportunity to get into an open wheel car which is where tony's looking to protect his investment here's the guy that's you know, all around these Saturday night, Friday night USAC events, he's the perfect transition when one of these nine seats open up to get into IndyCar and to bring to the Annapolis Motor Speedway for the Indy 500. And instead, he goes NASCAR racing, and his career is history, and everybody knows. Yeah, have how had that work after. out for him? Yeah, I think pretty well. And and of course, the same thing happens not that far after that with Tony Stewart, which right. we luckily had Tony Stewart for a year or two in the IRL, but he saw it and quickly moved on. And it obviously worked pretty well for him too. So I think there's one way of looking at it. People can say what they want about Tony, but in terms of protecting his family investment and having the foresight about where the sport was going in a lot of ways, he was spot on.
0: Ah, The sweet sound of sports you love from sling, the collide of football pads, the squeak of shoes on a basketball court, 21 plus only must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1 800 Gambler. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks, then there are drinks from McDonald's.
2: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with
0: any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: The other thing that, you know, you were part of through all of that is that was really, you talked, you just talked a little bit about it. The the improving safety within car racing. And so much of that came from Tony and from the IRL. And, and, you know, Tony was a huge proponent, pushed that really hard. So you were in the thick of things like the Hans device becoming mandatory, the safer barrier being built, work being done on attenuators, on gearboxes, things like that. That must have been a cool side of the job, having been around the sport for so long, playing such a pivotal role in making it safer for all these drivers that you've worked with or, you know, idolized over the years.
3: It, it really was, James. I think my involvement with and association with the group of people that helped develop the safer barrier is by far the thing I'm most proud of, of anything I've ever done being involved in this sport. I think it's, I think it's probably the single most impressive and important safety innovation in the history of, of motor racing. I think it's, it's, um, you know, there's been a lot of them everything from the seat belt to you know, some of the energy absorbing materials and seats and head surrounds and helmets and Hans and whatnot. But I just think when you look at what the Safer Barrier has been able to accomplish, its versatility, being able to use with stock cars, Indy cars, you know, and a variety of racetracks, the turn radiuses, the versatility of it and its effectiveness. I'm, I'm really proud to be involved with that group, a pretty small group looking at that. And well, if you could ever go back and look at the The evolution of what we did on that, we had a little safety committee and Phil Casey and Dr. Henry Bach, John Pierce, and myself, and we kind of helped design and move forward with what was initially called the PEDS, which I believe was an acronym for something like the polyethylene energy dissipation system. And if you go back and look at that with what we had created, Phil Casey and I first tested that in the inside of the Turn 4 at the Speedway. Uh, Phil had gotten a junk car and we took one of the maintenance wreckers and greased up the push bumper on the front of it. And, you know, <laughs> we had IMS productions, put a TV camera up and Phil and I were out there one Saturday morning and we pushed this car. And I swear to God, you could do it a thousand times and you'd never do it again. But we had literally got this car, Phil locked the steering on it and I used driving the push truck on it. And we got the thing to hit within about a foot of where we had put an X on the wall and it was it was pretty cool how it worked, but then it ricocheted off and it was heading right over towards the attenuator. <laughs> and we thought, oh, we're gonna hit the attenuator with it and tear it up. But we we quickly realized that it was, you know, something that had a lot of merit to it. And you know, that's another thing. You go back to Tony, his his decision making and his guts to put some of that stuff out. We ended up putting that PEDS on the inside wall for an IROC race. And if you remember, Ari Dyke hit it with an IROC car in that race. And we didn't have the vision boards around. We don't know, you know, what's going on that much. But I was watching the IROC race from the turn two suites. And I walked over after the crash, they went red flag. And I, I walked over to Foyt's suite to see what was going on. And actually, AJ met me at the front door and he said, I think your wall just saved Landyke's life. And I'm like, oh, great. He goes, but it's all over the racetrack right now because it blew the wall off the attachment points and it's scattered everywhere. So we, we clearly realized we needed some help. University of Nebraska uh, came on board at that point in time and the ongoing development of that project led to where we're at. But again, having never installed it at another racetrack, you go back to Tony's decision where he's at and, and, reiterating the emphasis of the Annapolis Motor Speedway being an area for innovation and design and safety and a leader in those departments for him to make the call to put that on the outside walls for the 2002 Indy 500 having never been on any other racetrack pretty brave decision to make and you know look at look what it's led to it's around everywhere now and been pretty incredible it's amazing
2: the obviously, you know you you touched briefly on the development process that it ended up having to go through to get to the product that we have, but to so quickly come up with a universal adaptation of a product that legitimately saves people's lives um on a regular basis is is phenomenal like that's it's a rare thing. you know obviously that's there's a lot of things that have come out that are similar, but you know after decades of of trying and and you guys you know identified there was a problem, you needed a solution and and came up with one and relatively very fast periods of time. So James and I, I think sp- kind of speak from the same cloth in the sense of, you know, obviously it's saved James's life. Um, you know, I've had plenty of impacts on ovals and, and it's a, it's an amazing thing that we take for granted as drivers until you're obviously in that situation. But it is, it is something that I talk about every single time when, you know, someone that doesn't know much about the sport comes up to me, it's like, Oh, are you, are you scared of racing? Or is it scary going that fast? It's like, no, and the reason is yes the cars are safe but the tracks are arguably safer um yeah, so definitely. i, I want to point definitely. out i don't think it's fair to blame brian for saving james's life like that was <laughs> obviously we're all upset about that <laughs> i don't think that's brian's fault so so fast forward you know what is it 20 well 15 to 18 years and you get brought back into kind of the, the race team role. Um, was it 2019 when Harding racing was kind of getting up and going,
3: Eighteen. Um, yeah.
2: 18. And was that, was that exciting for you to, to be able to get back onto, onto the stand and, and go to work and, and try and win races again? Or, or did you feel like you had kept up enough with that side of it that you knew, you know, what you needed to do in order to to help at that time, Colton, go out and win races?
3: No, I I didn't. And to be honest with you, Alex, it was a a result of quickly seeing hadn't kept up enough with it and quickly realizing that teams had far more information than anything we had at IndyCar in terms of what's going on on the racetrack, you know, And, and that's one of the strangest things about it was, you know, when I was put into the role in 97 and, for the for the most part, you know, I think one thing that, that I tried to focus on was the safety aspect and component of what we were doing. I felt very responsible for the safety of all the drivers that were out there. I felt it was my responsibility, and because we did nothing but ovals, you know, the, the quickest we could alert you guys to an unsafe condition on the racetrack was, I felt, the highest priority we had on it. And it's kind of interesting. I think some of the things that I've seen is because all we did was ovals and then we learned how to road race. When you see different personnel and different race controls from different series, those that have road raced most of their life and have learned how to do ovals, it seems like a different reaction time and or priority to me to to notify you guys. I feel like the people that have been raised on road racing their whole life look at it more like we don't have that sense of urgency because we're relying on corner workers out there and if there's an unsafe condition they're letting you know first because they've got the flag stands out there and all that stuff we well, you, you don't have that in oval track racing and you know I I think I've seen a noticeable difference in terms of a sense of urgency of letting you guys know when something unsafe's out there and reacting to it quicker and I just think it was because I did nothing but cut my teeth on oval track racing at a time when we didn't have the best cars and drivers out there. It really added more of a sense of urgency to it.
1: So this is something I've always kind of wondered and you bring up how race teams have a lot more information these days than you do in race control. And maybe that's changed a bit since you stepped out of that role, but, you know, going back to when you were, you know, running the series and, and up there in race control I've always wondered what are you actually watching what are you looking at are you looking out the window or are you watching the tv broadcast are you just looking at oh. the array of cameras are you are you yeah are you checking in on you know the leafs game like what what is the primary actual visual focus for the race director throughout the race
3: well i'd, I'd never be checking on the leafs
1: that would be, well yeah
3: that's fair that's fair i mean if if you were going to say maybe you know, somebody that was good, but I wouldn't Who's, go down. Did someone say leads.
1: Habs back there? I, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's. Is that Max? If that's not here, Max, that's they're...
1: anybody but Max. They don't, Max gets a pass. Anyone else doesn't get a pass. <laughs> so, yeah, hey, Maxie! All right.
3: <laughs> um, it was interesting to, in, in all the years that I did it, James, The the vast majority of them, I was simply watching out the window looking at the racetrack and watching the competition through as much of the racetrack as I could see. Um, and it was only towards, you know, having done it for, uh, what was it the better part of 15, 17 years or so of doing that? It wasn't until the last five years or so that we actually started getting monitors and a wall or a bank of monitors in there that we could split the screens up and see the camera angles and around. So, the, the flow of information improved dramatically in the last four or five years compared to what they started with the first 10 or 12 where I was simply looking out the window. And then we did, we did a lot of things that I felt were pretty good. You know, as we started working with our timing and scoring people and coming up with the electronic information as to whether you had entered a closed pit or not and making that instead of a visual determination or a discretionary call defining it getting that information to pop up with instant messages and say you're entering a closed pit or you're okay to pit just working with that kind of stuff to try and improve the efficiency of it was something that you took a lot of pride in doing as well
2: yeah i mean it's obviously now that we're as a team on the opposite side of it, it's always interesting to kind of question like what is race control looking at? So that's a very, it's a very good question from James who doesn't have to deal with the wrath of um, stewards anymore at the moment. So
1: (laughs) no, they sometimes still get mad at things you say on TV. It's just a different kind of penalty now.
2: (laughs) That's true. That's true. But yeah, I've also been curious uh, to know that. So anyways, um, All right. So then the, the Harding kind of situation came, then that in a way kind of got folded into Andretti Autosport, um, where you worked James, um, and then worked with me on my last year there and then fast forward to 2023, um, you know, both in new roles at, at Arrow McLaren and, and everything that that comes along with a new organization and an expanding organization. Like, how's that been for you kind of going from, you know, uh, very small team to one of the larger teams on the grid and then kind of back to a team that was small at one time in growing life and that is now rapidly growing seemingly every day. I mean, I was just in there today and there's more people that I've never seen in my life. It's (laughs) it's
3: phenomenal. (laughs) One of them even figured out how to turn on speakers. It was, it was, uh, it was really great because you know as much as I appreciate, I got a ton of respect for Michael Andretti and and greatly appreciate the opportunities we had between the the technical relationship between Harding and working with Colton and then the opportunity to to kind of get folded into the the group at Andretti's and to work with James um, and then last year with you was was awesome. But the opportunity to come over to Errol McLaren as general manager and be a part of this growth and where this team is going is really exciting. This this team is on such an upward trajectory um, with a totally different culture involved with how we're trying to accomplish what we're doing up here. Our racing director, Gavin Ward, and everybody associated, Billy Vincent, Max. Uh, we've just got a, a great group of people you've probably seen around the paddocks and the fans are noticing. It's not uncommon for us to be playing music and, and have a great balance and understanding of work hard play hard balance of personal life and trying to achieve and, and accomplish your your goals of being on the race team on it and you know I think we're going to we're going to keep making strides we're going to keep getting better we've had a few missed opportunities this year racing's full of a lot of those and we're just going to try and eliminate those beginning this weekend at Nashville it's another opportunity and we're going to do our best to go down there and put two or three cars on the podium
1: and that would be great to see and we're all cheering for it certainly um brian we're coming to the end here we don't want to take too much of your time we know you've got to run that ever expanding empire over there at uh mclaren but um yeah we'll have to, we'll have, to have you back on at some point because i still have many questions but we'll just put a little nice bow on this you've kind of had i sort of look at your career as sort of three kind of eras right your eras on the team side from the mechanic standpoint then on the race control race series side and then now back on the team side more in the strategist management side um obviously everything for all of us is the indy 500 so i want you to to quickly tell us your favorite 500 from each of your three eras of your career so far wow Um,
3: favorite 500 from the first question yeah. yeah. <laughs> my favorite one was uh ninety-four from the first era with uh little Al and Pinsky and the pushrod motor, the beast and everything associated sitting on the pole with Little Al and winning that race after Emerson crashed late in the race. Uh that was my favorite in the first era. Uh my favorite in the second era was probably the two thousand and six race with Marco and Hornish and the close finish that we had from that standpoint. That was i i enjoyed that that car that that generation of Delara, was and that was a heck of a race and we had i think three or four lead changes in the last 10 laps so i thought that was one of the best best ones from that middle era and the best one from the final era is when alex wins the speedway next year there you, there you go, go. <laughs> nailed it
2: nailed it awesome. um Well, as James said, thank you for giving us a bit of your time. know you're busy. It's race week, and um, we will definitely have you back. And I will
3: personally see you in a couple days down in Nashville. Looking forward to it. And, guys, I appreciate it. And anything I can ever do for you, don't hesitate. Let me know. I'm I'm, uh, always happy to help if I can. You're a good group of guys, and I enjoy being with you. I mean, since you guys are hiring a few hundred,
2: if you want to throw a job my way, throw an orange uh, shirt his way. (laughs) 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 We've got a few spare. Thanks guys. Appreciate
1: it. Thanks, Brian. This has been Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. Off Track is part of the Sirius XM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. We're at Ask Off Track on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to follow us on Twitter individually, I'm at Hinchtown, he's Alexander Rossi. And if you want to follow Thim, though we have no idea why you would, he's at the Tim Durham on Twitter. Follow us on YouTube and subscribe to our channel for exclusive video content. OffTrack track is produced by Tim Durham, and by that we mean Thim.
0: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So